0: To focus on, uh, an incident in the life of Paul. And it really is, is a remarkable incident in that it is a, uh, it is a, there is a dispute here, a, a really difficult dispute between Paul and his dear friend and co-worker, Barnabas. You will perhaps remember this. Uh, remember that Paul and Barnabas had gone together on the first journey. They were the preachers. They were the missionaries, if you don't mind. And they took with them A young man to their servant, the Bible says. They took John Mark with them to be their errand boy. As they went from place to place, from city to city, it would be necessary at times to find lodging, to find food and that sort of thing, and to to run messages and that sort of thing. And so they took John Mark with them to help them. That's what the Bible says in Acts 13. But then you remember that John Mark deserted them. If you look just real quickly back at Acts 13 and verse 13, Acts 13, and verse 13, it says, uh, uh, after J- Paul and Barnabas had ministered on the island of Cyprus, they went up to Perga, which is in Asia Minor. And you see the end of verse 13, it says, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, that's John Mark, by the way. That's the young man who is going to author the second gospel under Peter's tutelage. But uh, John left them and went back to Jerusalem. And so they carried on the missionary journey without him. And then, of course, they returned to Antioch, which was the sending church—Antioch of Syria. Paul and Barnabas did. And uh, and 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 by the way, then there was this this uh, difficulty in the church over the matter of whether or not Gentiles who got saved had to be circumcised. And they went down to Jerusalem, and you have the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Remember all that? But now, after the Jerusalem Council, Paul and Barnabas determined to set out again on a second journey. They had gone on the first journey through to the island of Cyprus. And then throughout the area that we know today as Southern Galatia, and they had established churches, they had raised up leadership, and they felt it necessary to go back and to confirm those churches and those individuals and so on. So let's pick it up in Acts 15 and verse 36. Let me just read to you. It says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So let's go back and visit those churches. And Barnabas, verse 37, was desirous which is really an excellent translation. The King James there has determined to take John, but it wasn't that. It's, he, he expressed a desire. He said, I think it would be good to take John, Mark, with us. It says, Barnabas was desire, de, desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with them also, but Paul kept insisting. In other words, this went on for some time. And Paul was absolutely adamant that they should not take him along who had deserted them. And that's a strong word. In the Greek, that is the word apostasy. Now, it doesn't suggest some sort of doctrinal defection, but it it actually, to apostatize, is to turn back. It is to deliberately and wickedly turn back. And that's the word that Paul uses here. Think about it, Barnabas. When we were in the middle of the work, when the work got heavy, when we desperately... What did he do? He turned back. He went back. He had deserted them. Apostatize is the word that, that Paul used there. So Paul kept insisting they shouldn't take with him. Well, uh, take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. When the going got tough, John Mark went home and uh, left the, uh, Paul and Barnabas to do the work on their own. And notice verse 39, there arose such a sharp disagreement. And the word disagreement is only used twice in the New Testament. The other time it's used is rather interesting. It's a very positive word in Hebrew where we're told to provoke one another to good work. Same word. But it's used here very negatively, and it's, a, it's actually the word paroxysm. It is the Greek word which comes to the English transliterated to paroxysm. A paroxysm is something which just uh, convulses your whole system. And that's the idea. It's usually used in a medical sense, and it's, it's the idea of something that just erupted and infected the whole system. In other words, the relationship between Paul and Barnabas, when in all of its parts, just rendered corrupt, because now I say corrupt, maybe that's a little too long. But it, the, the whole relationship between Paul and Barnabas was infected by this dispute over John Mark, and it says uh, that there arose such a sharp disagreement or paroxysm that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the grace, of the, by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. So they split the territory. You need to understand, by the way. That on the first journey, and somewhere along the line, you must have made a map of the first missionary journey, haven't you? You should have before you get out of here. I trust that will happen. But uh, uh, on no, your survey, you went through uh, the, the first journey. But you remember on the first journey, Paul and Barnabas went to two places. They went to Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, which was Barnabas's home. And then they went up to the area called Gal- uh, Galatia or, or Southern Asia Minor. And uh, what happened here is after this disagreement, they simply split the territory. They said, all right. Barnabas, you think John Mark ought to be restored to the ministry, you take him. You take half the territory, you go to Cyprus. And Paul took another man by the name of Silas, and he and Silas went overland to to Asia Minor. Now, it is my contention, and I would like to suggest to you very quickly here this morning, I know it's warm and won't be long, but I would like to suggest to you that the, uh, the dispute here that between Paul and Barnabas is marvelously instructive. And, and I tell you something, one of the most remarkable and important things about this dispute is, it is a, it's a dispute between brothers, co-laborers, fellow workers. These, were, these men had been shoulder to shoulder in the, in the work of the gospel when this dispute arose. And I think to really understand what's at stake here, it's important to get to know this man Barnabas. You know, there are some men in the Scriptures, yea, verily, some men and some women in the Scriptures, who never really get much time in the spotlight, but you really ought to get to know him. There are some remarkable heroes, and Barnabas is one of those. And if you look closely, we can get to know this man, Barnabas. Go back to Acts 4. I'm going to take you to a couple of passages here. Acts chapter 4, you will remember this. In the early days of the church, just after Pentecost, Barnabas became a model, a standard of selflessness. As a matter of fact, what was Barnabas' real name? Do you remember? His name was Joseph. Barnabas was a nickname. It was a nickname to die for, really, if you have any heart for Christian graces and virtues. And what had happened is, in the early church, and we won't get into the merits or the wisdom of this, but in the early church, the Christians had developed this this, uh, protocol of having all things in common. Rather than anybody owning anything, If you owned anything, you would sell it. You would give the proceeds, all the money to the... uh, Some did this, or you would give uh, whatever you cared to. It was not obligatory upon you, as you remember. You would give that to the apostles, and then they would oversee it as they distributed to those who had need. And uh, Barnabas, it says in verse 36, says actually Joseph, who was a Levite of Cyprian birth, and he he was from the island of Cyprus, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, son of consolation. In other words, Barnabas was so well-known as a man who simply and perpetually gave himself away, lived for the sake of others, and in this case, by the way, verse 37, owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and gave everything to the apostles. Remember, this is the background of the Ananias and Sapphira incident. Because Barnabas was so honored, rightly so, and men so respected him, Ananias and Sapphira were tempted and and gave into the temptation to lie about giving everything away, and therefore, remember, they were struck dead. But the point is, for our purposes, Barnabas was a man so known for giving himself away, for living his life out for others, that they actually gave him this nickname, "Son of," which means identical with, to be identified with, consolation or encouragement. He just lived to encourage others. Look at Acts 11 in verse 22. You have a remarkable description. You see. Because of persecution there in Jerusalem, the gospel began to spread. People began to flee from Jerusalem up toward, well, they went as far as Antioch. Antioch is going to become the sending church for Paul and Barnabas, as you recall. But the, the, the church got started when Christians were, by reason of persecution, chased out of Jerusalem and they fled as far as Antioch. And because the work was going, there were so many Christians up there, in Acts chapter 11... In verse 22, it says the news about these Christians who had spread up to Antioch reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas off to give leadership to that church. So you could say that the founding pastor of the church, which becomes the sending church for Paul's missionary, was Barnabas. And notice how it describes Barnabas in verse 32, when he had come, I'm sorry, 23. If you're looking for 32, you're in trouble, but 23 is what I'm looking for. It says when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he, Barnabas, rejoiced and began to encourage him. After all, wasn't he the son of encouragement? That was his ministry. He began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. So Barnabas had a heart for the truth. But it says he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Listen, Barnabas, there are no black marks against this man, Barnabas. He loves the Lord. He loves the truth. He loves people. He goes up to, to Antioch. People begin to get saved. He's got a marvelous ministry. He remains, he keeps the church true to the Lord in the midst of all the vicissitudes and so on of the first century. This is a good man. And I'll tell you something. Not only is Barnabas a good man, but Barnabas is Paul's spiritual mentor. Saul's. But remember Saul of Tarsus. Remember what happened after Saul got saved. Go back to Acts chapter 9, if you will. After Saul got saved, He, he got saved on the road to Damascus, of course, and was blind for time, and then was baptized, and there was a threat upon his life, so he escaped by being let down in the basket and all that sort of thing. And he made his way down to Jerusalem. At this time, when Paul gets saved, Saul of Tarsus gets saved, Jerusalem is absolutely the epicenter. Nothing's going on in Christianity anywhere but Jerusalem. And so Saul makes his way down to Jerusalem, where, by the way, of course, as you remember, he had been an awful persecutor. He had breathed out threatenings and slaughters against the church, according to Acts chapter 8. Remember that? So now, Saul, a believer, but who's to believe that, comes down and shows up, and look at, and, and, and look at verse 26. When he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying, Paul was, now Saul, was trying to associate with the disciples, and they were all afraid of him not believing that he was a disciple, and who can blame him? They weren't going for it. This guy's probably got some sort of big plan, some sort of big strategy. And so when Saul needed to be introduced to the church, and affirmed as to his prophet for the ministry. Who did it? Look at verse 25, 7. Barnabas took hold of Saul. It was Barnabas and, and brought him to the apostles and described to the apostles how Paul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to Saul and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus and he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem. It was Barnabas who introduced Saul to the Christian community. Now, now, file that away. That's important because it was Barnabas who had the ministry in Saul's life, of, of 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 helping him to a place where he could be effectively used in ministry. And not only that, if you go over to Acts chapter eleven, again, and verse twenty-five, remember I said earlier we just talked about it that when the when the the Christians in Jerusalem were forced by reason of persecution. Up to Antioch, it was Barnabas who went up there and did a good work, was full of the Holy Spirit, and, and, and people came to the Lord. But uh, uh, take a little while to explain this. I won't, but just take my word for it. At this time, Saul, having been saved, Saul of Tarsus, having been saved, having gone down to visit Jerusalem for just a brief time, has gone up to his hometown of Tarsus. We read this in Galatians. And he was there in Tarsus for some ten years. That's how much time has gone by. And in the meanwhile... Barnabas has gone up to Antioch. Antioch is right around the corner. Now it's the corner of the Mediterranean, so it's a little distance. But Antioch's right here, and Tarsus is right here. And so Barnabas, the work just gets so big that Barnabas can't handle it. And look at verse 25. It was Barnabas who went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had brought him, he when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. It was Barnabas who introduced Saul into the mainstream of Christianity. You just can't overstate. And it's interesting, by the way, of course, they come back there to uh, Antioch. They minister there together for a year. During that year, they go down to Jerusalem with a famine relief uh, offering. But then go over to chapter 13. Are you still with me on this? I'm taking through a lot of stuff. But go over to Acts 13 and verses 1 and 2. It says there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. And notice who's mentioned first, Barnabas. And then it mentions several others. And notice who's listed last Saul. But, verse 2 while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Separate, apart, uh, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Now, Barnabas gets top bill. And you would expect it because Barnabas is one of the most important leaders in the church, and it was Barnabas, of course, at the church there at Antioch, who had been the founding pastor, if you don't mind. And furthermore, it was Barnabas who had introduced Saul into the mainstream of Christianity. So separate me, Barnabas and Saul. Now, what happens, of course, is that they set out on this first journey, and there's a remarkable and important distinction between Barnabas and Saul. Saul is an apostle. He's been appointed an apostle on the road to Damascus, and on the first journey, on the first missionary journey, he begins to function as an apostle. They come to the, to the island of Cyprus. There in the island of Cyprus, there is an official who, who, who is, is, is uh, on the verge of being saved, but a sorcerer comes and tries to resist. And Paul, this is the first miracle in, his, in, his, in the record, Paul steps forward and strikes this man blind. Do you remember that? And this certainly would have been evidence to Barnabas. Barnabas didn't have the capacity to do that because Barnabas wasn't an apostle. So it certainly would have been evidence to Barnabas that Paul indeed was an apostle. And then you go a little further in Acts 13, and there in the island of Cyprus, uh, it's Paul who steps forward and, and preaches this marvelous, marvelous sermon. And drop down to Acts 13 and verse 42. After the sermon, something very important happens in the record of Dr. Luke here. It says, verse 42, And as Paul and Barnabas were going out... You see what's happened here? It used to be Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas used to get top billing. Now it's Paul and Barnabas. Now I'm here to tell you that that's exactly what happens, and that would be hard on any one of us. Barnabas was in charge. He was the one who had brought Paul into the mainstream. He had probably mentored Paul to a certain degree. Barnabas was the one who was... Who was set aside for the ministry, and, and Saul was to go with him, and so on. All of a sudden, Paul has taken top place, right? And you'll see it again, verse forty-six: Paul and Barnabas. There's one exception, but almost entirely, then throughout the rest of the record, when when Barnabas and Paul are mentioned, it's Paul and Barnabas. Now, go with me. Go with me. Uh, go, with, uh, go back once again to Acts fifteen, and I and I want us to think about the dynamics of this dispute. You see, what I'm saying is. This man, Barnabas, had played a very, very important role. He had surrendered that role. And now, having surrendered the role of leadership, he has to sit by and watch Paul, as it were, make a very, very difficult decision. As far as Barnabas is concerned, Barnabas' heart is broken over this business of leaving John Mark behind. And I think I think to understand some of that, it's, it's good to understand the dynamics of this dispute. You know what? I read to you before Acts 13, 13... Think for a minute. Think of this from Paul's standpoint. You're Paul. You have a heart for the gospel. There is a world to be reached. You don't have any time to stroke or to baby anybody. John Mark already, I read to you Acts 13, 13, it says he left them and returned to Jerusalem. Paul's read on that in Acts 15 is that he went not with us to the work. He turned back. He apostatized. There's one other thing, and we can't know this for sure, but let me throw it at you real quickly. Notice Acts 15 and verse 1. Are you with me? What can you say? But I want you to stay with me. Acts 15 and verse 1. It says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. And their teaching was, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now listen. We don't know for sure. Why John Mark went back? There are a lot of conjectures. Some people will say, well, it was just too much work. Some people will say he was too young. He was homesick. He was just flat homesick. He was a mama's boy. We know this. And so he probably just went home to be with mama. He came. He was a rich kid. He was a rich kid. He wasn't used to a tough life. And so very possibly maybe he just had enough of the hard life and he went home to the soft life on, you know, on the western hill in Jerusalem where his mama lived. Uh, his, his mother had the big house. Where the the upper room was, you remember, Uh, the and where the 120 met on on the on the day of Pentecost, that was John Mark's mother, Mary, the mother of Mark, and and uh, so evidently they were rich, and but you know a lot or or some people say you know perhaps the thing I think we meant this perhaps the thing that caused John Mark to turn back and and to go not with them to the work was the fact that when they went up into Asia Minor they were going into thoroughly Gentile territory. And he was a Jew who had been raised in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem Jews weren't used to rubbing shoulders with Gentiles. And if they weren't used to rubbing shoulders with Gentiles, they would have had a lot of trouble with the whole issue of Gentiles becoming Christians without going through the, uh, the, the passageway, if you don't mind, of Judaism. And that's the issue that was struggled with at the Jerusalem Council. Do you remember that? The issue at the Jerusalem Council was, can a Gentile become a Christian without, first of all, becoming a Jew, to one degree or another, surrendering its Gentileness and becoming a Jew. See, in the Old Testament, Gentiles could get saved, but they couldn't get saved without, to one degree or another, surrendering their Gentiles. And that's why when Ruth said, Your God will be my God, she went on to say what? Your people will be my people. Now, that's an Old Testament concept. And it's because, as Jesus said to the woman at the well, Before the cross, as Jesus said, salvation was of the Jews. Do you remember that? Now, that's no longer true. And one of the most difficult and and convulsing realities that God ever set before mankind was that this this priority of the the Jewish uh, nation was going to be set aside for a time, Romans 11. But here's the point. Many have conjectured that it was John Mark who came home and, as it were, squealed on Paul and Barnabas and said, you know what they're doing? They're going out there and getting people saved and they're coming to the Gospel and they're not even asking them to submit to circumcision. Now, you can't prove that. You see what I'm saying to you? But maybe one of the things that was really chapping, and a lot of commentaries will suggest this, there's no way to prove it, but maybe one of the things that really was was, was stuck in Paul's craw was, was was his perception that part of this problem that they had just had to go clear down to Jerusalem and settle in the Jerusalem Council was precipitated by John Mark coming home and carrying on about how Gentiles were getting saved without being circumcised, without becoming Jews. And you can't say that for sure, but at any rate... Paul, and, and i tell you one other thing, go to Colossians 4 and verse 10. All I'm saying is Paul is saying to himself, I'm trying to, let's look at this from Paul's viewpoint. Paul is saying, now wait a minute, we've got a job to do, we took John Mark, he deserted us, he may have caused trouble for us, uh, we, we don't need that again. And I think probably Colossians 4.10 is going to enter into it too. You just have a little tiny note there in Colossians as Paul is bearing greetings at the end of Colossians. And he makes reference to Barnabas. Do you see it there? I can't find it myself. Uh, Barnabas, who is uh, uh, Colossians 4, verse 10, he makes mention to Barnabas' cousin, Mark. Now, you see, John Mark was evidently, and by the way, whether it's cousin or nephew, it's hard to say, but because uh, uh, it's a little bit of an ambivalent or uh, ambiguous word. But uh, the point is that John Mark was related to Barnabas. So you can hear Paul's saying, come on, Barnabas, you know, blood's thicker in water. You can't possibly see through this thing. You're not going to be able to think straight about this. This is your nephew or your cousin we're talking about here, and you just can't get past that. And the fact of the matter is, we've got a job to do. He deserted us before, and Paul kept on insisting that they wouldn't take him along. Uh, uh, along. But now for a minute, think about it from Barnabas' standpoint. Barnabas is the son of encouragement. He lives his life out he is willing to pay an extra price to rescue somebody. If it means that they might take John Mark along, uh, I'm sorry, if it means if they would take John Mark, that they, he might desert him once again, and, and Barnabas would have to carry the extra load, Barnabas' spirit is, man, that's what I'm all about. I'm willing to do that because that man means everything to me. And I'll give myself away to reach him, to help him. As a matter of fact, you know what? Barnabas is trying to do for John Mark what he had early done, earlier done for Saul of Tarsus. It was Barnabas who rescued Saul of Tarsus when he was being rejected by the Christian community. And now Barnabas is just trying to say, Paul, I'm trying to do for you, uh, for, 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 for Mark, what I did for you. And Barnabas's heart is broken, and he can't get past that. And, 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 and uh, let me ask you a question real quickly. Who do you think was right? I mean, if, if it's possible... to to settle the dispute as whether or not there was wisdom in taking John Mark. Or let me frame it this way, and I can answer it more positively. Whether or not John Mark was redeemable. Should the effort be made and the risk be taken to redeem John Mark? Well, I hear the Apostle Paul eating some non-apostolic crow, if you know what I mean, in 2 Timothy 4.11. Because in 2 Timothy 4... At the end of his life, in a terribly, terribly poignant moment, as Paul anticipates certain and soon execution, and just wants somebody, some people to come and to show him some love, look what he says in verse 11. He says, please, pick up Mark, bring him with you. He's profitable to me, to the ministry. That's a remarkable statement. And I'm glad to say that Paul was big enough to say it. But what i'm saying to you is this and i'm going to make three simple points of application and we will be done what you have in acts 15 is a really difficult dispute the greek language is pretty well ransacked to make the point that this was a convulsing dispute between two mature selfless principled christian workers and leaders and I believe, let me just say, that some people put a very, very uh, unhappy spin on verse 39. Are you back in Acts 15? Acts 15, verse 39, it says, There arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated. Now, some people will read that to mean that they, they just walked away cursing one another, but the Bible explicitly makes the point that that is not the case. The fact is that they deliberately separated the territory. As I said earlier, they simply said, You see, you know what? Let me give you just a brief, brief testimony. I, my background is very, very fundamentalist. I was raised in a, in a very, very tight, us for no more, close the door background, as I like to say. And, uh, you know, uh, we're doing it right, you're doing it wrong, and our primary ministry is to point out how wrong you are. And, and I, I need to tell you that I cherish that background. I am thankful for it. I absolutely trust and delight in the providences of God. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I have moved a little ways away from it. But, and and I'll tell you why I did. This is my simple testimony. I could love and cherish everything they love. I couldn't hate everything they hated. I just can't bring myself to hate everything I was supposed to hate. But having said that, my point is simply this, that the standard response to this sort of dispute in the circle out of which I come, would unhappily I think be for Paul and Barnabas each to start a newspaper and to get as big a mailing list as they could and write long articles about what louses each other are. I mean that's we'd call each other names. We'd, that's 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 the response. And and uh, I think it's it's horribly horribly dishonoring to God. And what you have here is Paul and Barnabas creatively, lovingly. Splitting the territory. And I believe the spirit was Paul saying to Barnabas as a word, listen, you take John Mark, you go to Cyprus. By the way, Paul was jealous for his ministry. If he felt there was anything wicked in Barnabas, he wouldn't have said, well, you take Cyprus. I'll guarantee you. It is a vote of confidence for Barnabas that he says, you go to Cyprus, I'll not go there. You take John Mark with you, I'll pray for you. I will delight in every single victory you win, and furthermore, my earnest desire, the longing, my—I'm making this up. I admit this to you, but I think clearly this was from from the from this record as it unfolds. This was the spirit of Paul. You go, I'll pray for you. I'll delight in every victory you win, and you know what else? I will. My my heart's desire is that you will prove me wrong, that John Mark will do well, and I think Barnabas's spirit was you take Silas, and you know what happens they got twice as many missionary teams as they did before. And they're working together. I mean, they're not working arm in arm, but they're doing the same thing. They're doing the work of the Lord, and the work of the Lord is, in fact, doubled. Now, let me make three simple applications, all right? Number one, I would encourage you on the basis of this passage to carefully distinguish between matters of biblical revelation and matters of personal discretion. Folks, that's not to disparage personal discretion discretion. You know what? 90 percent, 99, who in the world knows? I'm making it up. But I'm guessing that nearly all of the of the real issues that are going to face you where you're going to have to make a choice and it sometimes it's going to make you, it's going to cause you to say you know brother i love you but i don't see it the way you do and as long as we don't see it the same way it doesn't make any sense for us to yoke up together and we're going to have to go our separate ways but i love you and i'm going to pray for you you know most of the issues that are going to result in that sort of decision really they don't deal with subjects to which the scriptures speak isn't that right I mean, if the scriptures speak explicitly to it, guess what? It's easy. And I want to tell you something. I am just so delighted to be in a place and be following a man, Dr. MacArthur, and and he, you know, he'd be embarrassed to hear me say this, but I am just so delighted to be in a place where we know how to drive a stake. And if the Bible says it, it's a hill to die on, as my good friend Dewey would say. Do you believe that? I mean, I, die on it, stand on it. But what happens so often is that we're dealing with a decision. See, the Bible never says thou shalt or thou shalt not take John Mark. So they don't have hard Bible to go to. And you know what the temptation is? Uh, this is just a little insight, take it for what it's worth. But my my, my insight, my perception, my uh, my experience would suggest that the temptation when you're dealing with an issue which is really a matter of personal discretion... I see it this way, you see it that way. It's, it's just a matter of personal discretion, and that's important, but you can't be ugly about it. You can't be as ugly as you've got scripture, you've got revelation. But the temptation is when you're dealing with, a, with, a, with an issue of, of, of personal discretion, the temptation is try to construe it in such a way as to make it as if it were a matter of hard Bible. And you really have distorted the whole issue in order to make, but that gives you the high ground. And now you can call the other guy names. And that's very, very dangerous. When you are dealing with an issue that is, in fact, a matter of personal discretion, I'm not saying you should just waffle and say, oh, I'll do anything. If, it, if, you, if you find yourself in any position of leadership, it's your responsibility to exercise that discretion. And when you come to what you think is the only wise course or the wisest of all courses, you need to pursue that. But when you come face on face with someone who disagrees with you, and it's a matter of personal discretion, you need to be so careful to guard your spirit. And the second thing I would suggest to you when that happens, your reaction can actually make the situation productive rather than destructive. You see, if you'll react in a godly fashion and get creative many times, because that's exactly what goes on here. There is a dispute but the consequence of the dispute is that you've got two aggressive, godly, mature, and effective mission teams carrying the gospel across the Mediterranean world. Now, if Paul and Barnabas had come to blows over this, and if they had started the second Baptist church of Jerusalem, Barnabas went off and started that church or whatever, of Antioch, you know, and, 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 and you spent most of your time reminding yourself what a jerk and a cuss the other guy was, the work of the Lord probably wouldn't have been very much advantaged. But what I'm saying is that a lot of time it is your reaction which is going to determine whether it's a productive or a destructive situation. And in that regard, let me give you one other thing. And this is where I'm taking it, sort of. It seems to me that many times disputes like this will be resolved, or at least will be resolvable, if you are willing to surrender the spotlight. Because so often these become a matter of of who's in charge or who is in fact going to 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 maintain the spotlight you know what here's a remarkable thing this is the last time in the book of acts barnabas's name is ever mentioned the last time we ever run into him is when he takes uh uh, john mark and sets off for cyprus now i don't think and, and by the way some people assume that because uh barnabas and even the other 11 apostles or the apostles and so on aren't Followed in the Book of Acts, they must not do anything. The fact of the matter is they were doing much. Then and Barnabas and and, and we have a reference in First Corinthians chapter nine that Barnabas was very, very aggressive and he continued the ministry. But I tell you something, Barnabas was willing to surrender the spotlight. And let me just tell you something, especially you who are headed for ministry. Folks, ministry the the worth of your ministry in our culture is defined by your notoriety. That is wicked. To the degree that you attract attention and people notice you and you, you make a name for yourself, all too much today in our culture, we we have bought into this idea that that's what defines success in ministry. Most of you know the life of Paul very well. You don't know the life of Barnabas very well. He surrendered the spotlight. I said I was going to be quick. Let me tell you something real quickly. Now, this is this is rather personal. And I, I'm asking you to do me a favor. and What can you say? Get up and walk out. But I, two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, and I'm not trying to jerk anybody around here, but three weeks ago, we, uh, uh, well, about about a month ago, about three weeks ago, my dad passed away. And he passed away very, very suddenly. And uh, he, uh, you know, I may not get through this, so I better not start. Let me just tell you. Uh you know, I started and I can't get through it. <laughs> uh, see, I'm, I, I didn't mean to do this to you, honestly. Good. Uh, I went back to, to bury my dad, and uh, it, it became and it has continued to be a perpetual occasion to remember the goodness of God. Uh, give me one second. <laughs> this is a... I'm dripping you around here, and I didn't mean to do that. But uh, my, my, the, the thing that uh, thrilled me, you know, when I heard my dad had died, a very dear friend of mine came and uh, spent some time with me, actually two dear friends, Paul Plew and Al Potter. And in the, in the course of that, one of them, I am not remember which, asked me, he said, was your dad hard to please? And I said, you know, I'm 49 years old. I'm going home to bury my dad. And that's the first time that thought ever crossed my mind. You know, my, I never had that. doubt, whatever. I'm so sorry. I, I thought I could do better than this. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I, I never worked to please my dad. I spent my whole life trying to be like my dad. <clears throat> i got to quit this. At this one point, that my dad lived his life out for others and never asked anybody to notice. And I got a note from uh, my, my friend, uh, <clears throat> Bill Schlegel. And he had met my dad just once, but he said something to me that really stuck with me. He said, from everything I know about your dad, I think he's pretty well situated right now. And uh, I believe that with all my heart. You know what? What's that got to do with Barnabas? My point is simply that I think that the work of the Lord, most of the work of the Lord is done outside the spotlight. You believe that? Most of the work of the Lord is done by people who simply give themselves away to others. And it was because Barnabas was willing to surrender the spotlight, it seems to me, that to a large degree, this situation became so marvelously productive and the work of the Lord was enhanced. And when we begin to think that that the only place the work of the Lord is done is in is you know when people notice and in the spotlight, so praise the Lord for those who get the spotlight. And if God gives you a, a ministry where you can affect large numbers of people and so on, praise the Lord. But if that's what you set out for and if that's how you define ministry, you see you put yourself in the, in in, in, the, in the throne of your universe. That's what I'm saying to you. And I just think here's my point that a lot of the difficulties that arise are unsolvable because we want. The spotlight we want to be the ones who are in charge of whatever and i would just enjoin you understand distinguish between that which is truly bible and that which is personal discretion secondly understand that uh if you are if you are uh, it is your reaction that's probably going to determine whether it's going to be a positive or a negative a productive or a destructive thing and then understand that probably the most important element of the whole thing is going to be whether you are willing humbly to, to surrender the spotlight and whether that means letting the other person take the leadership or make the decision or whatever it is, it's the, very often that's what's going, to, what's going to determine. Well, let me Let's have a word me. of prayer for you, and forgive me for being so long. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the, uh, the testimony of this man Barnabas. We rejoice in Paul. We stand on his shoulders in so many ways. We, are, we, are, uh, we have been taught by him as you have revealed yourself in the New Testament through him. We encounter this man, Barnabas, who is such a marvelous and, 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 uh, uh, selfless testimony, and we, we thank you for him. And I pray that you might excite in us a spirit that is willing, first of all, to give ourselves away, but then to do it in such a way that we are simply mindful of your glory and never of our own. We'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. We're dismissed.